So we're going to be examining carefully the teachings here that Jesus provided. It's clear. Equips us to make distinctions in a fallen world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we're doing now at this point is we are seeking you through your word. You've spoken. There's a lot of talk, a lot of speech that's happened over the course of a lifetime. We're looking for authenticity. We're looking for truth. We seek it from you. What we want to do, Father, is to bring clarity to the confusion of life. Minister to the heart of the person who's coming here struggling that they will find stability upon this foundation that's Jesus. For the one father who comes spiritually curious, but at this point has not put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would speak to that heart and truly, by the work of the Holy Spirit, powerfully be working in such a way you are leading them to you. For those that love you, Father, we want to grow deeper, We want depth, but we also want breadth in the way in which we live for you and minister to others. So again, now in these minutes together, praying that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Traveling through Tucson, Arizona, sometime back, I was reminded of a story that appeared in newspapers locally. It was at a gem and mineral bazaar in Tucson. Now I'm reading from it, where an amateur rock hound sold an egg-sized violet and blue stone to Texas gemologist Ray Whitston for $10. Now, the original asking price was 15 but Whitston talked him down. After months of rigorous appraisal, Whitston made an announcement about his $10 rock. It was a 1,905-carat star sapphire with an estimated uncut value of $2.28 million. His good fortune was not just good luck, because he said, quote, I was used to handling rocks and saying, yeah, that's a keeper, or that one's no good. But you see, the difference between a rock hound and a gemologist, between the amateur's $10 rock and Whitston's $2.28 million find, is the ability to distinguish value, to be able to discern as to what is of highest significance and what's not. The believer is not to be an amateur in this world. 
As the believer develops strategic skills to be able to discern, to distinguish, what the believer's got to be able to do is to look at the wide range of opinions, wide range of truth claims, wide range of values, and then through a very careful appraisal determine whether or not that is of God or not. We're going to develop our appraisal skills this morning with this passage. What I want to do with you now is to draw out four very important distinctives that we need to make in the course of life, all of which is found here in this chapter of Matthew. First of all, I want you to notice with me the difference between the two gates mentioned in verses 13 and 14. Notice how it reads. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, notice that these are gates, plural, not singular. Notice that, furthermore, they are starting points. The beginning of going somewhere. But notice that only one of the two comes with a command delivered by Jesus. Enter. Jesus does not say, choose your gate. But rather, he has already clarified the onset for this spiritual traveler, which gate to choose. The tense is something that deals with a dramatic decision, an action. There's grace in the command. He narrows it down for you at the onset. He narrows down the gates to the narrow gate. But what I want you to notice is that there are gates, plural, but really only two. He's noticing that there is a pluralistic approach to life that many embrace. But there is to be a singular commitment as to which gate to choose. He spells it out for us. Enter it by the narrow gate. Now, this narrow gate is it's restrictive, isn't it? It's defining. It's confining. You contrast that to the wide gate. It's non-restrictive. Man, you've got some flexibility here. You could take some stuff with you. You got room to maneuver in life. You see, it's spacious. You think about Jesus, who would use another metaphor I am the door. He didn't say, I am a door. He said, I am the door. 
And so again, he used a singular approach to getting people's attention that the apostles would have understood and communicated on the streets of Jerusalem, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by a given among men by which we must be saved. So now we have to evaluate our starting point. Do I opt for something narrow as defined by God? Or something that allows me flexibility with regard to matters of true versus false and right versus wrong, the values of the culture and the values of opinion that are found here? But only one of these two gates has Jesus dramatically and profoundly issuing a command, enter. It's the narrow gate. Now, what I want you to notice with me furthermore is that these two gates lead to two paths. Read it again. Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those entered by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So now notice furthermore that these gates, two separate gates, lead to two separate ways. Measure your starting point. Only one of the two had a gracious command attached to it. What is so interesting about our Jesus, you would think that he wants you, he wants me to feel comfortable about where this, where this narrow gate might lead me, but notice what it says here in verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. So now I begin to make a connection, and there is wisdom when a believer who's growing grace is able to make connections as well as make distinctions. You distinguish between the two gates. Only one of the two had a gracious command attached to it. But the two gates lead to two ways. And interestingly, the gate which is narrow produces a way which is hard. Meanwhile, in verse 13, the gate which is wide produces a way which is easy. Man, I would have loved that to have been reversed, wouldn't you? And the natural assumption so often is, well, God is a loving God, so the way ought to be easy. Okay, the starting point was narrow, but can't we make a way which is at least comfortable? But that's not how he's teaching this. You see, the two starting points, the two gates yield two ways. And the narrow gate spoken of leads to a hard way. Now you pause here at this point and you begin to ask yourself some serious questions. Am I willing to fully embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when it comes to this life journey. What he's telling me is that not only is the starting point, this gate narrow, 
He's telling me that this way I'm on is going to be hard. There's going to be illness. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be conflict. Meanwhile, did you notice that wide gate? That gate, wide as it is, leads to a way which is easy as desired. So now we've got two gates. It leads to two ways. But notice that these two ways are populated by two groups. The, the gate which is narrow leads to the way which is hard, and there are few on it. Meanwhile, as you examine this passage very carefully, you are finding, in verse 13, the gate which is wide produces a way which is easy, and there are many who are on it. This leads me now to start thinking very carefully that God's gate is restrictive, not spacious. But furthermore, God's way is not determined by majority opinion. Because majority opinion is found walking through that wide gate. Majority opinion is found in the midst of the majority on that easy path. So now if you're a parent or a grandparent, if you're single or married, if you are in a gathering on a Friday night or at work on a Monday morning, you have to continuously assess now, where do I draw my beliefs from? Because the source is not majority opinion. The source is the majestic Christ. Majesty carries authority. Do I draw authoritative values and beliefs from the majority? Or do I draw my beliefs and values from the majesty of the one who three days later was raised from the dead? Now you see what we've got here. This is starting to unfold. What they have in common Both have gates, but only one of the two carries with the emphatic enter by. And that came from Jesus, and it pertains not to the wide gate, but the narrow. Both produce ways, but you see this narrow gate produces something which is hard, while the wide gate produces something which is easy. Now, The way which is easy has the majority. The way which is hard is populated by the minority. But even that in itself is not enough. Because not only do you see here the gates that lead to the ways, and the ways which lead to the populated numbers, but furthermore, this in turn leads to the destinations. Look for the destinations. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now what I'm finding is I relationally share the gospel continually is that what people want to do is to make the journey the destination. 
you know, engage myself in a lot of secularist type conversation and ask, well, tell me where you're at in life. That is a journey type of question, you see. Draw people out. And it's not unusual, particularly for younger generations, to say, well, I'm on, a, I'm on a spiritual journey when they find out that I'm a pastor of sorts. And what I'm interested in is to lead them to the point of asking, what is the destination of your journey? Because so often what I'm finding is that what the secularist does is that they make the journey the destination. They don't deal with the ends, they just deal with the means. What we want to do is to take them to logical conclusions. Well, where does that lead you? When you're lost, I was on the streets of Rome, not lost per se, but standing with some family members. It was totally dark outside. Google, take me to, and it got me to my destination, even though there was no lights on the street. But that little word, too, is important because I'm concerned with destination in my journey, and so are you. These two gates produce two ways, which produce two peoples, which produce two destinations. And the wise individual has got to be able, in this fallen world, where there seems to be a blended approach of spiritualities, to help people to understand that the journey is not the destination. The journey leads to a destination. Which destination will it be? Antonio Banderas, you've heard of him. You know him. He's an actor. And he was being interviewed about his values in life and said, I'd like to remind myself of a line in a poem from the Spanish poet Antonio Machado, he said, which loosely translated, Quote, there is no path. You make the path when you walk. And that's how I live my life. Always forging my way. Now you've got to contrast that then with what Jesus is saying here. Everybody's got a starting point. Only one of those two starting points created a gracious command. Jesus did not have to say, enter by the narrow gate, but he did. That's to equip you, help you, help me. So at the very beginning, then, there's love that speaks. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, the little T.O., And those who enter by it are many in the majority. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there we have it. What we've got to do at the very onset then, when we look at the complexities of life, and we are living among people that want to use a blended approach to spiritualities, is that number one, we equip people to note the difference between the two gates as they relate to the two ways, as it relates to the two peoples that leads to the two destinations. Now, there's a second distinctive I want to draw up for us now. It's found in verse 15 down through verse 20. Not only do you note the difference between the two gates that Jesus is speaking of in verse 13 and 14, 
I want you to note the difference now between the two trees. Spoken of in verse 15 through 20. And we'll break into this as we go. Notice once again he uses an emphatic word. Regarding that narrow gate in verse 13, he says, enter. Not regarding false prophets, he says, beware. Beware. In other words, by stating that there's something false in this world, what he's saying in essence then, not everything is true in this world, and that there is a distinction that needs to be made between what is true and what is false. And so he issues the beware sign to people that are processing what Jesus has to say. Now the problem is that so often, day in, day out, we are not dealing with the beware. But the beware has got to be applied. Now as Jesus spoke, the people that are listening to him would have had to have been tremendously responsible for their older testaments because this was a Jewish crowd. And this Jewish crowd would be aware that in the Older Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 23, what God had done was to distinguish false prophets. You might want to jot down Jeremiah 23 next to this verse 15. False prophets can be detected by their moral lifestyles in Jeremiah 23, 13, and 14. False prophets are distinguished as crowd pleasers in Jeremiah 23, verse 16. False prophets, furthermore, are such that they make it appear as though they speak for God, but they don't. And so to determine what is false in comparison to what is true, you've got to analyze very carefully what God has already revealed as you listen very carefully to the opinion of the person that's sharing these sort of values that might sound very attractive to you if you're very weary, you see, of this hard way as you squeeze through that narrow gate. And you begin to think, is this really of God? Or is this not? And how do I go about appraising as we think about that gemologist in Tucson who realized this is no ordinary rock. And he recognized value. Now likewise, what we are called to do then is look very carefully at life and to recognize, to distinguish, to appraise, to evaluate what is of highest value. Couple Jeremiah 23 with Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 18, which gives five singular mocks of what a true prophet was to be all about. Read on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and again in verse chapter 18. So these people now were already responsible to do their homework of appraisal. And now what Jesus is doing is sharpening their skills of evaluation, of appraisal, with the beware. 
He doesn't merely say, follow true prophets. He acknowledges the reality and the complexities of this fallen world. Beware of false prophets, which Eve did not do. Because in the Garden of Eden, the false prophecy that began the downfall of humanity was the challenge that you will be like God. The challenge that you will not die. Now, notice that it says, beware false prophets who come to you. It does not say, beware false prophets as you go to them. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that the falsity of life takes initiative. It might come through media. It might come through social interaction, through a wide range of experiences and relationships. But there's a subtlety to it, just as there was a subtlety to the evil one in the Garden of Eden. Because Eve did not approach the serpent, the serpent approached Eve. Beware of false prophets who come to you. Now, in the time period in which Jesus is speaking, and in the setting in which Jesus is speaking, people knew an awful lot, you see, about shepherds. They come to you in sheep's clothing. And you see, the shepherd himself wore sheep's clothing. He would shave the sheep, and then the family would create clothing for themselves. But there is something beneath the surface here that needs to be understood. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. What he's telling you and telling me at this point then is that we have got to be able to make a distinction. How do you recognize them? Well, he shifts the metaphor in verse 16, doesn't he? You want to be able to recognize it. You don't want to be naive in this world. You don't want to be marked by gullibility, and you certainly don't want, don't want the next generations you're raising to be marked by that. So in your, in your skill of appraisal, in your determination to be sound in evaluation, what do you look for? Well, he sh- shifts the metaphors, you see, from raising sheep now to... This whole matter of fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, when he goes on to say, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, he does so in the context of that time period. Because the buckhorn, the buckhorn had little blackberries that could be easily mistaken for grapes. And furthermore, the thistle produced a flower which from a distance could easily be mistaken for fig. What he is telling his people that are listening carefully is that you're going to have to get close and evaluate. You will have to equip yourself in the skill of a so in this fallen world, 
because the false gives the appearance of what is true. The evil one in the Garden of Eden did not deny the reality of God, the existence of God. In fact, he carried on a God conversation with Eve. World War II. During Hitler's regime, whenever the Nazis held torchlight parades or massive displays in Berlin, a historian tells us, they were meant to impress the world. You know what they would do? They would ship in thousands of stormtroopers from Munich to beef up the crowds. They had to do that because Berliners themselves seemed to have a singular lack of enthusiasm for Hitler. So the world might see newsreels of fanatical support for Hitler in Berlin, but the reality was, was that that was not a sign of that at all. Now what Jesus is doing is saying that in this fallen world, you've got to develop your appraisal skills. You cannot be spiritually gullible wise parenting, grandparenting, wise maneuvering through the complexities of life as a single person, a married person, whoever you are, requires ongoing evaluation. Now, in verse 17, he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Where are they having come? Trees. But sometimes it takes a period of time for the fruit to become visible. Initially, that person might not, might not appear to be espousing all that which is bad or that which is false. Sometimes the test is in the time. But you just don't jump on board immediately Every healthy tree bears good fruit. There's a season, a production, a harvest. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is, and here we get destination again, cut down, thrown to the fire. And so you say, but I want appraisal skills. I want the capacity, the ability to evaluate. He says, okay, check out verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, which is a repeat of verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. It's stated twice to provide you and me reassurance in a world that is so incredibly confusing. It's a classic Peanuts comic strip. First day of the new school year. Sorry, students, if it's coming closer. Students were told to write an essay about returning to class. And in her essay, Lucy wrote, Vacations are nice, but it's good to get back to school. There's nothing more satisfying or challenging than education. And I look forward to a year of expanding my knowledge. 
On the next frame, the teacher is complimenting Lucy for her fine essay. But you've always got to get to the last frame of life, you see. And in the final frame, Lucy leans over and whispers to Charlie Brown, after a while, you'll learn what sells. But she doesn't utter that until the final frame. Now what you and I have to do is to be able to ask ourselves, and how does this gate lead me to the final frame? And in the matter of these trees that I'm evaluating, what will the final frame look like? So what we're doing now is that we are allowing the Bible to mature us. And one of the key characteristics of maturity is the ability to make distinctions. When a child is very small, a child sees a dog and before long can distinguish a dog from a cat. But when the child gets older, the child can then begin to make distinctions among the dogs and among the cats. That dog, oh, that's a Doberman Pinscher, or that's a Cocker Spaniel, or that's a German Shepherd, you see. But it takes time and skill to continuously cultivate the ability to distinguish. Now, the Christian home cultivates the ability to distinguish. And so what we are doing now is we're noting the difference between the two gates in 13 and 14, the two trees in verse 15 through 20. But now thirdly, I want you to note with me the difference between the two claims in 21 through 23. And notice how it begins. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's in everyone, not everyone. But the one, notice the singularity of that statement, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We've got to break this one down. And notice the contrast between the not everyone phrase in verse 21 with the but the one phrase towards the end of verse 21. Now, what these two groups share in common, both are making verbal professions. What these two groups have in common is that both seem to be very religious. What these two groups have in common is that both seem to be talking about the Lord. Astounding. So we have to develop our appraisal skills once again. Evaluate very carefully. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and notice that that is used plural. I mean, there's so much plural in this teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you see the contrast there that's unfolding? Now you take a deep breath and you look at verse 22 in the final frame of 
life. And you ask yourself, and what is it that is being taught here? On that day, many. And you take that word many and you draw a line back to that same word which was used to describe those who were on the way which is easy. Those who enter by it are many. And now you say to yourself, okay, we are dealing here with some form of religiosity, some form of verbal professionalism. In verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, now notice the dual emphasis, Lord, Lord. Repetition is God's way of getting our attention. Lord, Lord. Note this comes in the form of a question to Jesus. And notice it's plural. They want to feel good about the fact that they're, in the, they're not alone in this. There are other things. Did we? Now notice they're doing something very spiritual here. Did we not prophesy where? In your name. Notice the phrase in your name. Furthermore, cast out demons. Where? In your name. Do many mighty works. Where? In your name. Not once, not twice, three times now. In the form of a question, a large number of people, evidently majority, are now bringing this in the final frame to the one where the apostles themselves on the streets of Jerusalem had challenged the mindset of the people with regard to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How do you understand this? He responds to the question with this. And then will I declare to them, plural, I never knew you. The word knew carries with it an intimate relational aspect to know. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, which is astounding. They've put all their emphasis upon their works which leads us, of course, to ponder Christ's work. But they're saying, Lord, Lord. And on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. And then they're spelling out the spiritual involvements that mock their lives. How do you understand in relationship to what Paul wrote? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He did value the profession from the mouth of Jesus as Lord, didn't he? But notice, as a wise person, not only do you make distinctions, you make connections. And you are connecting the verbal to the internal. Yes, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but furthermore, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. And this is verbal profession, 
without internal conviction. They're very spiritual people, and they are on a journey, but they're hitting that final frame now, and they pose a question to the Lord. And here they hear the response from the Lord. And that leads us now to this fourth and final distinctive. That you notice with me not only the two gates and the two trees and the two claims, but fourthly, you note with me the difference between the two foundations. The two foundations. Which ties together all that we've been talking about in the series, the Christ series. Because we end by thinking about upon Christ our Lord. Notice now the everyone. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. He builds off of their doing claim and sets out the contrast of foundations of living. Will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Contrast. And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, notice there are two foundations, but they do have something in common. Both had home builders, house builders. And if you nor I checked out the foundations prior to the construction, we'd look at those two houses and be taken aback by perhaps their appearance, the way they looked, not aware of what might be underneath the surface. You see, something more in common. What do they share in common? The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew. In other words, he's saying the believers as well as the unbelievers are going to experience this kind of life pressure, the storms of life. What's the difference? In verse 25, the wise man constructed upon the rock his home. As a result, that house did not fall. But in verse 27, when the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house built upon the foundation of sin. It fell. Great was the fall of it. What it took were the storms of life to reveal the foundation of life. And such is true for you and for me as well. It's the storms of life that reveal the foundations of life. Paul and Silas understood that. Because an earthquake shook Philippi. They had been imprisoned for their claims pertaining to Jesus. But the jailkeeper, so taken aback by the fact that the foundations were being so shaken, the question was posed to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe. But what interests me is the next word in the original language. It's the Greek word epi, which carries with the idea to believe upon something or someone. 
What he is saying is that your foundation for living did not support you. But if you believe in the foundation of Jesus Christ, validated through resurrection, he and he alone supports you in the storms of life. Believe in literally upon the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then the same holds true for his whole household. If they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. And so now what we do is that we realize that God is calling upon you and me to do appraisal work. And he equips us to make distinctions between the two gates of life, the two trees of life, the two claims of life, and the two foundations of life. And like that gemologist in Tucson, Arizona, who upon closer scrutiny and evaluation determined this is no $10 rock, this is a priceless gem. What the believer does is that he evaluates the rock, Jesus Christ, sees the foundation for living in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and finds stability of life in the midst of the earthquakes and the losses that life produces. And you're left standing in that final frame, you see. And for the unbeliever, There's grace in that earthquake because it reminds the unbeliever that their foundation was not secure, but there is one who provides a secure foundation when the storms of life come our way. But what it means for the unbeliever, it's time to rebuild and build your life upon Jesus and him alone, upon Christ, our Lord. Let's stand together. So, Father, you've given us the capacity and you've equipped us with the tools to assess, to evaluate two sets of worldviews, two sets of claims, two sets of paths, two sets of destinies. The two trees ultimately ultimately based upon Jesus and him alone, is where we position ourselves. Speak to hearts, and if any in these services this morning and the comings and goings of warm summer days haven't taken seriously the need to appraise the finished work of Jesus and the reality of the empty tomb, may they put their faith and trust exclusively in Jesus and find stability for life that's eternal. Equip us all now, Father, with the teaching from your word. May your blessing be upon all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.